0: Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. You'd be hard-pressed to find an architect or design professional who believes their clients understand and will pay for the true value of design. As part of our new series called Designing Value, we'll be talking to leading thinkers about how we define and communicate the value of design to provide actionable insights to apply in practice. Our guest today is Tyler Goss. Tyler is an architect and innovator with a diverse career with companies from WeWork to Disney Imagineering, and now as a VP and Global Digital Lead at AECOM. On this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, he shares his unique background and what he's learned that informs his perspectives on the value proposition of design. Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment, Tyler Goss, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Bob. I appreciate it. Well, I was really excited for this conversation because you have a really unique backstory and you have a lot of different perspectives with which to look at this central topic of the value of design. Tell us a little bit about where your perspective comes from, what your story is.
1: You know, I trained as an architect. I've been an architect or I've been a licensed architect for quite a while now, since 2010. Um, but this all really stems back to an incident in grad school. I uh, was in my second year of grad school, and for some reason, you know, mental health or otherwise, uh, I found it very difficult to justify any design decisions I was making based on solely on my design intent. Uh, it, the the way that I've always described this is. I started to feel, what gives me the right to put this line here? What gives me the right to, to say that this, this corridor is here, that this room is here, that this program is here? And obviously, you know, when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, there is nothing that really gives you the right other than the fact that you call yourself an architect and you say, my job here is to architect. But nevertheless, for me as a grad student, it was really difficult. And what I, what I, I, the way I got out of that hole was to start looking at, can I make... Value judgment. Can I can I can I t- start to empirically justify my moves, my planometric moves, my section moves, my my you know facade moves through some sort of quantitative financial basis? Um, so this led me to do a lot of research in my second year on the on how the financial modeling happens in architecture, how how proformas are built how speculative architecture is completed what are some of the financials of you know even of our, our, our more you know the civic architecture as well and it got me out of the out of a place where i couldn't draw anymore um and so for me it's been it's been foundational to my experience as an architect
0: was this something that that you came to entirely on your own or was there any kind of conversation in school and you know among your Fellow students or professors about this way of looking at the value of design.
1: There certainly were discussions. You know, I recall this is this is back in. You know, I'm going to date myself here. This is back in uh, 2003, which seems like just yesterday, but it is actually 20 years ago. There were a lot of discussions of some of the ways that the O'Carant architects handled this, this. This you know handled the praxis around intention. Um, you know, obviously you have. Folks like Rem, who just kind of, you know, who, who create uh notional programmatic decisions from uh the intent of the users. Um, you have someone like uh, Peter Eisman who uh with his you know indexing of the site as he called it back then, um, to to uh find some through narrative, some narrative, some some narrative that could be converted into form. But I don't know if this has changed much in architecture schools, but I don't think there was much emphasis on the financial or business end of, of architecture when I was at UCLA in 2002,
0: 2003. Okay. So first of all, where did this exploration lead you when you were in school? And then how did that, how did those ideas start to translate into the first place that you worked?
1: So as I went through the next few years, I really started, I started looking at, at, uh, um, program and form as a, a as outgrowth of, of this uh, of of the cost of building um so I, I we had a studio I think it was my third year that was about the redevelopment of uh Los Angeles City Hall Park the sort of the, the the long promenade Park that goes from that moves from the la dwp building all the way down to the LA City Hall and part of this was a a exploration of putting residential on that site. And so this is where I started really looking at the financials of residential and understanding, you know, unit mix. And these are things that I was all that I was doing all on my own. Uh, It was not part of the brief at all, but I, I found myself really looking at a way of using the unit mix and the program to drive the form. And, And again, at the time, um, this is very heavily influenced by the ideas of of Greg Lynn and the the you know the Monad and the the uh, I forget the name of the, the theoretical house he proposed, which you know shifted and moved as as program changed. Um, but using this as a way to express program on the facade and and using that you know driving the building from the inside out, driving the building from the user, and this is really what like that that exploration and that. That project, you know, in addition to obviously connections, because we always have connections in our industry, brought me to Shop Architects in New York. And I'll never forget the, you know, going into my interview there, Shop at the time was doing a lot of work for a little, uh, speculative residential work, just off the, off the heels of Porterhouse, one of the most famous uh, early designs. Uh, and they were also doing a lot of work for um, large institutions like Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, and I remember like the, as I'm talking to Greg Pascarelli, you know, his theory he laid out for me then was really interesting, which was that, that, you know, anyone can design an auditorium for Goldman Sachs at $2,000 a square foot right? There's no balance to what you can do. You can have jade inlays as they did. You can spend, you know, $100 a square foot on carpet or even more. Um, it, it, the the entire uh, auditorium was, you know, was, uh, was clad in bronze. Uh, it was a beautiful piece, but it was no challenge from a design perspective. And what Greg said to me then is he's like, what I'm really interested in is how do we take the design and the ideas that we've done at Porterhouse and translate that for a larger audience, how do we democratize that? How do we make it so that everyone has access to this level of design that we're able to do here? Um, and that really struck with me and stuck with me. And that's why I you know, I, I took that job over the other things that were you know, available in New York at the time. And immediately started working in the residential studio there, working on a 665-unit 600, building in Washington, D.C. that was 20% uh inclusionary housing and so again this having this thing being driven by program and had to be driven by program because it was it was the pro forma was so tight that we had to be incredibly economical with how we laid out the, the units how we thought about uh facade how we thought about all of the other aspects of this building you know and this i think that that shop was the right place to be at the time because shop was very interested in new financing models for architecture right we was interested in you know in in several of our projects there Uh, we took an equity stake in the development in in lieu of of uh, architectural fees or in addition to architectural fees and as a result we had skin in the game and we had to think about the pro forma and we had to think about you know the, the value we were delivering and we had to think about uh, all the little design decisions that realtors and developers know by heart, but that we as architects don't tend to think about. You know, a- as an example, there was a, a project which actually got built, uh, 290 Mulberry, uh, Mulberry House, uh, which you can probably see it still on the shop website. And when I was designing the the penthouse apartment for that, and uh, got really into actually discussing with. Potential customers, or people, or realtors and potential customers, how they thought about their morning routine, um, how they walked, you know, how long they wanted to walk to the bathroom, how long they wanted to to linger in their closet picking out clothes, et cetera, et cetera. The result of that. Of those interviews and those those uh, those uh, questions was that what came out overwhelmingly is that people you know one of the th- most valuable things in New York is the ability to stretch your legs and walk and so you actually created a circuitous route and so that it was a little bit longer uh, you know you had to had to leave the main area of the bedroom you had to move down a hallway to the bath to the bathroom that was still part of the suite and you know then walk you promenade through the the bathroom all the way to the to the shower you know having that the luxury of motion in new york was the thing that was seen as the as the most the valuable thing about the design um so we did that and you know unfortunately uh didn't sell right away because that was right at the, the start of the 2008 crash but as far as i know it's been a successful design
0: since yeah so at shop you know every firm has to deal with this balance of practical considerations and practical ways to or economic ways to look at value, right? Like looking at the pro forma and things. And then design decisions that are made for other reasons, right? And some of those may be experiential or aesthetic or whatever. How did how did shop look at hitting that balance?
1: I don't think it's a balance actually. I mean I think that that those those moments of delight that you try to design into every project, those are I mean, your your aim is to delight the person who walks into the space, or who uses the space, or who owns the space. I'm using delight in a very broad sense here, and because of that, because that's that's the goal. That's you know, delight is what the customer values, right? The, what he delights in, or what they delight in, is is what they value. Um, so, you know, I. I know it's it's a bit of a of a wide definition of value, but I, I think that any of those things that, that you know the delight uh, is is the value in the design. Now, when you talk about the purely economical, the purely brass tax economical concerns of it, those are boundary conditions, right? Those are the the we know what we have in terms of budget, in terms of capabilities of the trades in that area. In terms of what we believe to be the return on the investment, uh, in the case of a speculative or, or uh, you know, speculative building, and the balance is trying to leverage design to create the most value inside of those boundaries, right? I mean, that's very. I mean, and and at shop, the way that we did that was by you know, and oftentimes developing ideas that allowed us to break down or just, just expand the edge of that boundary a little bit. And I'll give you an example of that. I mean, it's the very famous example, uh, I think from within shop, which is the Porterhouse. So the Porterhouse is a adaptive reuse of a warehouse building in the meatpacking district in New York City. And the site was available uh, for purchase. There was this number of developers competing for it. And uh, the developer we ended up working with, uh, they, came to us to ask us for design decisions that would help him win the battle for the site, win the bidding for the site. And what we came up with in, in concert with Burrow Happold was a cantilever that uh, extended the building 10 feet over the site next to it. Now, they bought the air rights. The, the air rights were available as part of this, so we were not you know, impinging on, on that site at all. And because that was about five feet longer than the... You know, than expected, we were able to create a huge amount of extra square footage, very cheaply. You know, it ended up being 300 square feet, I think, per floor for six floors, and that, you know, at the time, well, those were those buildings were selling. The building was selling for $500 to a square foot or $600 a square foot. So you could see how that money, you know, how that that finding that one design decision that allowed us to extend the building out further created all of this money out of thin air. That then allowed the developer to bid more for the land and win the project, and then we won the project as well as a result of that.
0: Right, and so through this design decision, you were able to really enhance the the financial value uh, of the deal for the uh, for the developer. So it sounds like a healthy way to look at this, or a way to keep uh, financial or economic concerns from. Being seen as barriers to design is this whole idea of parameters.
1: Well, they're soft boundaries, right? They're, they're not barriers to design. If you if you start saying, you know, and this is again, I think we're you know, going back to my experience in grad school, seeing those barriers as hard, seeing those boundaries of of cost, not value, but cost, as hard, or the seeing the the uh, capabilities of the trades as hard and fixed you're not going to be able to to create something new as a result.
0: Where did you wind up going after shop?
1: So I I briefly had my own practice in Vermont, but then the the next big move was to Turner Construction. There is definitely a stigma still in this day and age uh, about architects that go and work for construction management firms. It's not design in a traditional circumscribed sense. But again... Mm -hmm we're talking about soft boundaries here, right? Mm -hmm. So what I saw at Turner and what was, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, Jim Barrett, who who became my boss and mentor, what he saw was there were incredibly interesting design decisions, not design of the building, but design of the process by which we built buildings that could be made in construction and would have outsized impact on, You know, innovating the industry, making the construction industry more productive, building better buildings, etc. You know, and this this was the this was around 2010. This is the time when when uh, every every construction firm was building up and developing their BIM departments. Right. Mm -hmm. So I went there to work to to run the BIM department for for Turner Construction. And again, that's also that also comes right out of Shop because Mm -hmm. Shop was a very technically advanced firm, technically forward firm. We used a lot of New technologies um, or or emerging technologies like generative components or Rhino and Grasshopper, uh, Revit uh, at the time these were all controversial departures from AutoCAD. And so, having that BIM background, having that technological background, allowed me to make the jump into construction technology at Turner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when I when I'm talking about design decisions um, or designing a process as opposed to designing a building. I'll give you an example again, you know, World Trade Center Tower 2 was a was a Turner construction project. Uh, and you know, we had produced from the 2D drawing set that the uh, architect had built. We produced 3D models uh, and we went ahead and ran interference checking, clash detection on them, mm-hmm. found uh, on on the order of 40,000 clashes per floor. Based on the drawing set that was produced by the by the architects. Wow. Of course, this is the classic conundrum of drawing in 2Ds, that you have no chance to, you only your visualization of the 3D space is happening only in your head. And therefore it's somewhat fallible. Like mm-hmm. then the architect has to translate their 3D ideas into 2D and make sure that everything is correct and everything is nestled correctly. And then of course you have all the other trains that have to put all their all their work in there as well. And so we realized, because of the scope of the scale of of the clash in this building, that we were never going to get out of the ground if we didn't change the process by which we Mm -hmm. uh, reviewed and resolved those clashes. So this is when we developed, you know, at the time the way that clash detection was done and clash and, and, and interference resolution was done well one it was done on a light table with mylars 2D mylars which took forever and was quite fallible um we had just started to crack this the uh the code on on 3D clash detection uh at Yankee stadium and the way that we did it there the way that it was becoming the standard process for doing this was that you would meet once a week you would tell everyone what their clashes were, they would go and work to resolve them, uh, and then they'd come back the next week and you'd do it all over again. And what this the problem with this was that these folks were working in a vacuum, right? So they, they would go for a week and try to resolve their stuff and they'd come back and they may have resolved 500 clashes, but they had created 300 more. So this is you know, one of those two steps forward, one step back kind of situations. And it was too slow to meet the schedule that we had for the Trade Center. Uh, so what we did, you know, we did a design intervention. We said, okay, what is the, if the problem is that these people are working in a vacuum, let's put them all in a room together. Let's create a big room Uh, Luckily, we had a big room, uh, one of the, there was a great space in seven world trade that we were allowed to use. Uh, It was a former law firm. So I had, you know, seven tradesmen, trades draftsmen sitting around a massive, massive law office conference table uh, for roughly two months. uh, And we resolved all of that work. We got through four stories of the sub-basement where all of the trade, all of the, the the uh, mechanicals were and we got out of the ground on schedule uh, and you know this became the de facto way in which we would do clash detection trade coordination at Turner Construction or at least the way that I built it out in our New York office and the way that we built it for our uh, for the San Francisco office I subsequently or the Oakland office I subsequently came out here to manage.
0: So there's a really interesting set of lenses that you could look at design value through that are illustrated by the uh, stories that you've told from both Shop and Turner. One of them is looking through the lens of the object, right? Looking at the lens of the uh, of the building that you're designing. The second is looking through the lens of process. Um, how is it that you can improve the process to you know, better preserve design intent, make the process less wasteful, and make the process more economical. And then there's this other element that's entering into the story about new technologies and how those are able to enhance or even change the value proposition for design. Am I picking up, you know, relevant threads from what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're you're probably weaving the story of my career better than I can. Yeah, I mean the technology is an interesting one because you know the the goal of technology is ultimately in in our industry is process efficiency, right? So mm-hmm. it does it does serve process and it, and uh, or at least that's one of the goals, and it does serve design as well. If you start if I start to think about it, you know, in earnest here, because it allows you some of the new technologies, the NURBS based technologies, or, or um, you know, surface modelers allowed us to do form. In a way that we hadn't been able to do form before you know the, the, i think the classic example of that in the industry is frank geary's use of katia uh, mm-hmm. as uh, in in the development of both bilbao and the disney concert hall
0: mm-hmm.
1: but the for me the interesting thing with technology um is that as an industry technology is constantly expanding on soft boundaries right they're constantly finding Ways and yes, some of those ways are, you know, skirting regulation <laughs> or or uh, uh, labor arbitrage, which are things I wouldn't necessarily want to do myself. But there have been some really astounding and interesting, you know, developments, and, and I think we all, you know, we all today give Revit a hard time because it's old and it's clunky uh and people still believe it's slower than drawing by hand or drawing drawing in in autocad and in, in some cases that is true but you know at the time when we first started using it at shop in 2007 it was a revelation right it was allowed us to do things that we couldn't have done before uh we were designing a building at uh 30th and 10th street in uh, new york a residential building uh in the highline corridor and so the highline corridor had some the zoning uh, the zoning regulations in the Highland Corridor were, were drawn up relatively recently at this point, uh, in 2007, and they were also somewhat inconsistent. And so we found an interpretation in there that allowed us 12 FAR, so 12, uh, 12 times the lot size in, that we could build in terms of square footage. And we brought and we had designed based on that interpretation. And while we were petitioning the city for, to see if they uh, agreed with our interpretation and, you know, wouldn't you know it, they said, well, no, actually you're only allowed nine and a half FAR. So we had a 40 story building we designed and we had to take it down to 30 stories over the course of a weekend and redetail it, redraw it. This is, this is where we were in design development even. And Revit allowed us the ability to make that change with very little marginal cost. Uh, and we also look like heroes to the customer, right? Because we we came in and we solved it over over the course of a weekend, as architects are often want to do. So that or Revit or, or Navisworks allowing us to clash in 3D, um, some of the most, the more interesting technologies that are out there now uh, are around, I mean, really like bringing you know, even bringing AI and, and into co- the computational design space, like, you know, like Hypar or uh, Victor, which are doing very interesting things with computational design outside of the platforms, you know, outside of Revit and Dynamo. And then just, you know, all, all of the project management pla- and and process management tools that have, that have emerged of the construction management tools, like the structured site or uh, uh, open space. These are all tools that extend the capacity of the, your architect or
0: engineer or construction manager to do their work. So it seems like as as we're going through your story that you're kind of adding these different dimensions of understanding around the value of design, right? What you can do, what you can do with the building itself, what you can do with the process, what you can do through the technology to enhance many different levels of design right or many different enhance many different ways that value can be perceived whether it's through the building user from the developer uh, or some other interested party so from uh, your time at shop and at Turner construction was the next place that you went Disney
1: no actually I, I've I spent a couple of uh, I actually had a Couple of different places I went during that time, you know. I think most of the folks in the industry are aware of Case Design, uh, which was a, a BIM consultancy a BIM and BIM and business process consultancy that Dave, founded by Dave Fano, Steve Sanderson, and Federico Negro to to develop technology solutions for the industry. And so, you know, that was sort of extending that that technological thread that we all had started at Shop together. You know, from from there, uh, Case was sold to WeWork. WeWork was a very interesting place. I have plenty of things I could say about that, but I was really only there for three months, uh, and I don't feel like it's you know it's not my place to say. People have spoken much more eloquently on on WeWork and its troubles and 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 victories as well. But uh, from there, I spent some time at Turner working directly in our innovation and technology uh, group, just trying to find new solutions for the construction industry. Uh, and then from there, I went to Disney Imagineering, uh, which, frankly, Disney Imagineering was was far and away one of the most interesting places I've ever worked or ever experienced. Um, you know, imagine 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 an industry uh imagine a, a business where the people you work with are the absolute best in the world at what they do not you know top tier uh no the best I mean the you know Disney Imagineering is made up of over 100 different disciplines uh, and the people who work in rides uh in ride engineering ride controls, show engineering, show controls, show lighting, you know, animatronics. Um, If you want a job in those places, if that's your passion in life, that's where you go. And I got to work with these people every day, uh, which was just absolutely amazing. And so what I was there to do was to manage the the construction technology pipeline. So all of the technology we used to deliver on these massive, massive projects. That was my responsibility to make sure all that stuff worked uh, and all of the uh, and and we built you know connective tissue to stitch all of these different software platforms together. But the really interesting thing about Disney is how they thought about value because of course they're a business, right the 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 reason we build theme parks and theme attractions is to make money. Uh, and it's very, very, I mean it's it's an elaborate and complex financial system inside of Disney because it's a huge company. But at the end of the day, it's very simple to bottom line what the value of design is there because they make it very easy because there's a lot of effort gone that has gone into studying and modeling that you know and the reason for that is the the reason that that all that that effort is done to study and model the financial impact of design decisions is because Disney has a lot of money and choosing and but then choosing which what where to invest that money to get the best return is the bread and butter of how that company has survived for 100 years. So either, you know, you can take, if you have a billion dollars, you can either invest it in four or five Marvel movies, uh, or you can build a theme park attraction, a theme park land. So as a result, you found the imaginary team in constant competition with all of the other ways in which Disney could make money, all of the other ways, and oftentimes much more profitable ways that they can make money. So at Disney, it also wasn't just about the, financials. It wasn't about, okay, we could, if we produce this ride, we'll have 30,000 people per hour going through it, which means this much revenue for the company. Disney actually has developed the concept of an excellent experience, right? So you're only measuring based on the number of excellent experiences we deliver as Imagineers. Um, you're not measuring off of how many times someone goes to the rides measuring how many times someone goes to the ride and has a great time and this is done through surveys and and uh a lot of other uh financial modeling but you know the the company actually knows what the value of an excellent experience on an e-ticket attraction is in terms of what the revenue that what revenue that will bring in for the company
0: so it sounds like at Disney, they added yet another kind of layer or dimension to this whole question of design value. It sounds like they were really focused on experience, and that they found some uh, interesting ways to be able to quantify that that were outside of just simply financial.
1: Yes, yeah, and so it it allows you to to take that qualitative experience and bring it into a financial justification in. A way that everyone agreed was proper and you know responsible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, and you know, this thinking underlies every design decision that's made there. You know, whether whether to how to invest in animatronics, how to what what ride vehicle to use, uh, how to skin the ride, what's the IP we're going to use. All of these decisions are are based on we think this is going to give the best experience. So these are all design decisions that are driving a, you know, a customer being happy at the happiest place on earth and tying it back to in a relatively simple way back, you know, a simple mathematical way back to the business of the company. And I thought that was brilliant because it it's it's sort of what I had been. Working towards in my own research and my own efforts on on the idea of the value of design from
0: the very beginning of
1: my career, I mean, going all the way back
0: to grad school. well, it sounds like if you if you think about that moment that you had in graduate school where you were you were questioning how can I make these decisions? Another way to look at that is what value am I bringing by making these decisions? And it sounds like at each stage in your career, you added more and more dimensions of how your decision making, whether it was process based, whether it was technology based, whether it was using the Disney model of experience, whether it was, you know, focusing on the, the parameters of a building, that you were able to kind of add and add and add to the ways that design decisions can create value.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the, the the fundamental value proposition of an architect is to draw a line on a piece of paper and say, the space on this side of the line means this thing, and the space on the other side of the line means something else. That's really what architects do all day long. And ascribing that, I mean, like, that's, that you could build up any sort of theory or basis of, of your design philosophy from that fundamental premise, but it always goes back to that first principle. And for me, yeah, the the I took the track of I need to make a, a value-based decision that's independent of myself and my ideas as an artist or an architect and that are really driven by what the customer of the building needs to create spaces that have value to them and so at chop that was you know creating was was creating lovely and and very interesting uh residential buildings you know at, at turner my customer was were the trades the trades that worked for us so i want to make their process as easy and and fluid as possible you know and then obviously at, at at Disney, the customer is the theme park uh, theme park visitor, it's the theme park guest, and so making their experience as enjoyable or as happy as possible was the guiding principle of all that work that was done. Uh, and you know, and ultimately at Disney, more often my customers were internal Imagineers, so I tried to extend that same level of guest experience to their, uh, you know, to the to the the systems and tools that they used on a daily basis to to build
0: the 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 theme parks. So you taught for design intelligence in uh the learning institute and you taught about the value of design. Were all of these ideas part of what you uh you know told the emerging leaders who were part of that program?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is I believe very strongly in in all of the you know in in the uh in the philosophy, design philosophy I've built up over the course of of the past two decades. It was a really interesting conversation that we've had uh, at the at the Learning Institute kind um, interesting conversation with with the firm uh, that we were teaching. It's interesting and I think one of the things that that really brings value with the Learning Institute is the diversity of perspectives that are on offer. I mean, you know, it's seldom that someone with a career as eclectic and and varied as mine gets a chance to talk to architects about design. Uh, I guess to talk to them uh and 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 help reframe for them what the value of their design work is and I think we you know of course in every in every business and every uh every job or every company that we work for you have a tendency to you get caught in different scales you know and you get caught too close to the work you can't see the big picture you get caught in the big picture you can't work out the details and what I really enjoyed about Teaching that course was the ability to move scales to reground the the company's perception of what their value was, and to you know ultimately I, I think hopefully to change how they think about design, change how they think about about the way that they work. I mean, there's nothing that that makes you happier as a teacher than to see your ideas put into practice.
0: Well, and to see perhaps people who you're trying to work with expanding the parameters of how they uh, how they look at the value of design in this case,
1: pushing on those soft boundaries again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's start to bring this back to your day to day life now. So after Imagineering, where did you go?
1: So I'm now at Aecom, where I'm the VP and Global Digital Lead for Water. Uh, so I support all of our water infrastructure business with digital tools, digital consulting offerings, and digital products that we uh, are actually building and selling as SaaS services. And so, I mean, the reason that I chose to go to Acom again, was, was a moral and ethical one. I mean, I, I came out of Disney having produced joy that was the ultimately the product at Disney and and it's hard to argue with that from an ethical standpoint although I think a lot of people do with Disney in the way that they they gatekeep that joy but the idea of working in the water um, which is ultimately the most important thing on this planet and has been really eye-opening to me the way that that this industry thinks about its responsibility to the planet to the people it serves is, you know, it, it's an extension, it's it's a continuation of how Disney thinks about its guests. So what we've been doing recently is, you know, a lot of the work that we did at Disney, a lot of the work that I did at Disney, which is to build tools and software that make my coworkers' lives easier, sort of building a lot of design automation tools to help automate the process of engineering wastewater treatment plants. Uh, and and pipe networks and things like that. It's also an opportunity to build out software that takes the engineering expertise of AECOM and opens it up to a larger audience, creates more value in the world, uh, because instead of having to buy hours from AECOM, which are expensive, you can buy software from AECOM that helps you do the same thing as, as our engineering expertise uh, would be. And one of the, my great, my favorite examples of that is the new platform that we've built called Pipe Insights, which is a AI-based machine vision tool for sewer inspection. Now, this is a process that uh historically, you know, is the historical way of doing it is you, you take a little camera that's on a dolly, you drop it into a sewer, you drive it down the sewer, and as you're driving it down, you have an operator in a truck that's sitting in the middle of traffic, marking out every single defect in that sewer. And what we've done instead is now you can just go and you can throw a robot in the sewer. It can crawl its way through the sewer. And then on the other end, you drop that video into uh, the Pipe Insights AI engine, and it will identify and code over 280 different types of defects in the North American market. And so this takes thousands of years of engineering expertise that have been imparted into, I think we had 20 Uh, 25 different engineers who are trained and certified inspectors that were training the AI vision model to recognize all these things, and so now you get access to that AECom expertise, but you only have to pay a software price for it. And to me, that's that's the biggest victory: is building out tools that make it so that we're not just working with the uh, LADWPs or the uh, SFPUCs of the world. These big you know, big cities, uh, but we can offer the same level of service to, you know, to municipalities with maybe 500 subscribers. For me, that's the goal uh, at econ is to get our expertise, democratize it out so that everyone who, who needs that expertise can get it at a price that they can afford.
0: And all facilitated by new technologies and maybe some design thinking. Absolutely. Well, Tyler, it's been fantastic to hear uh, this incredibly varied and rich career path that you've been on and all the different ways that you have learned to, you know, expand upon the value of design and the way that you look at it. Just really appreciate you uh, coming into This Is Design Intelligence and sharing your story with our audience.
1: Well, Thanks, Bob. This has been a lot of fun. And look, this is what I love about design intelligence, the ability to dive deeply into things that matter to me <laughs> and matter to, hopefully matter to your audience and really move the needle on on how we think about the future of this industry.
0: Well, really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, anytime. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.